where we are uh, kind of adventuring through John 3.16. John 3.16 is this super familiar verse uh, in Christendom. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. It's, it's one of the first things you learn. It's one of the most common familiar verses that uh, even many non-Christians would go, yeah, I know all about that one. I've heard that one before. I've seen the poster at the football game. John 3.16. And what we said last week was it's something that is really well known to us, but it's not something we always know really well. And so uh, what we're doing is spending this whole month and just taking kind of one word out of there each week and saying, what does this really mean? What does this really look like? And so this week we're uh, going to be looking at the word uh, gave. God so loved the world that he gave. And what uh, what does that idea mean? What does this give that God is doing? And how should it impact us? And then how should it change the way that we live as we go out of here? And so we're going to start somewhere, uh, I guess rather interesting, for a series on love. I was thinking about it. March is this kind of fun month. March has spring break and, and then St. Patrick's Day. And then what happens? March Madness is happening. That's an exciting thing. Everybody likes March. And then April, what's the biggest day in April? Tax day. <laughs> hey, April, way to go. So this is like all this fun happens in March and then April comes and everybody knows tax day is on the horizon. And so in order to celebrate tax day, we're going to actually start talking about taxes today as we uh, go to the bigger concept of love. And so in Matthew chapter 22, we're going to uh, read about the Pharisees and some taxes. Matthew 22 verse 15, it says, then the Pharisees went and they plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and you teach the way of God truthfully. You do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Verse 17, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, They marveled, and they left him and went away. I was drawn here by a guy by the name of Dr. Kelly uh, Capick, and he teaches at a place called Covenant College, and he wrote a really remarkable little book on God's love. And and I never expected to be teaching on uh, taxes when we're supposed to be talking about John 3.16 and love, and yet he drew this incredible kind of parallel to it, and so I'm actually just stealing that from him, so I want to acknowledge that uh, first and foremost. And, and the reason he went there and the reason we're going there is because it's, it's all about this idea of, of what does it mean to give? When, when God so loved the world that he gave, what did that actually entail? And so to get there, we have to look at this verse that we read and see the Pharisees setting a trap. The Pharisees are really good at setting traps and they, they kind of have this natural, normal way they always do it, which is flattery and then the trap. So they always start with flattery. They tell Jesus that he's uh, true and he teaches God's word truthfully you're not worried about people's opinions. You're such a, an independent thinker, Jesus. Anyway, by the way, and then they, they spring the trap on him. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? For Jesus, being something of a radical rabbi, he can trip in a thousand different ways depending on how he answers this question. He can incite on one kind of pole, he can incite a rebellion against Rome by saying you shouldn't pay your taxes. Well, and then they got him. They could arrest him. They could try him. He could be, he's done. They, they've gotten rid of him. On the other pole, he has the potential, if he does this wrong, of diminishing God, of somehow making Caesar more than God. 
And in between, there's a thousand other ways that he can kind of trip over this question. And so they've actually really sprung a pretty good trap. Jesus, however, wasn't fooled. He gives his answer. Render to Caesar what's Caesar's and render God what's God's. To which they marvel and they leave. As if there was one out of the thousand, there was one path he could take that would actually undo their argument and leave them befuddled. He chose it. If you've heard this text preached before, render to Caesar what's Caesar's and render to God what's God's, it's probably in the, the context of paying taxes or uh, responding to civil government or politics and how we interact with the world around us. I don't think that has anything to do with what Jesus is talking about here. I don't think Jesus is emphasizing anything related to taxes or politics or civility or government. I don't think he's saying, yes, you do for God, God's thing, but, you know, then compartmentalize and in society, do your societal thing too. I don't think he's talking about the responsibilities of you and I as Joe and Jane taxpayer. I don't think it has anything to do with what he's thinking. I think what he's doing, rather, is making a pretty revolutionary claim. You see, the coin... The coin had the image of Caesar on it, right? The Greek word for that is icon, E-I-K-O-N, where we get the word icon. It's one of those easy Greek to English translations where you just say the same word. An icon is something that is an image made in, uh, in the image of something, right? It's a, it's a figurine, it's a coin, it's something, and it's got the image of another thing on it. And so he's talking about this icon. He holds up this icon in front of them, this picture of Caesar on the coin. And in this one word, using this one idea, Jesus takes us back to the garden, back to Genesis. Because the denarius, the coin, was made in the emperor's image, right? It had the emperor's image on it. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I think Jesus is pointing back to in whose image are you made? Humanity is made in God's image. Humanity bears God's likeness. Humanity is an icon of God. Humanity, including Caesar, ironically, is minted in this sense in God's image designed to image God and then serve as representatives of his splendor and his creative beauty. And so Jesus is saying clearly, Caesar wants your tax. Fine. God wants your entire being. And what will you do with that? The Pharisees put this perfect trap out. There's no way he can answer this without either diminishing God or inciting a rebellion. We got him. If you ask a basketball coach the best way to attack a trap, when, when they full court press, March Madness is happening, and you'll see this happens, and the two guys come on one guy, and what, the way you attack a trap is you have to be more aggressive than the aggressor. They were interviewing uh, John Calipari yesterday during halftime of Buffalo versus Kentucky. And Buffalo, this upstart MAC program, Pulls a first-round upset. Now they're here to play against Kentucky. And in Buffalo, we even saw when we went to the game here, they play with a whole other level of intensity, a whole other level of aggressiveness than any other team we'd seen all year. And he acknowledged that. And he goes, when you play John Calipari a pretty well 
respected coach, says when you play a team that's as aggressive as they are, you can't sit back and let them be aggressive. You have to actually take the aggression to them. You have to be the aggressor above them. The way to attack the trap is actually to be more aggressive than the trap itself. And I thought that was something. I was sitting there watching that, and I'm listening to, you know, a basketball coach who isn't thinking about my sermon this morning, admittedly. And I'm thinking, it's exactly the same thing. Jesus looks at this trap that's coming upon them, and he sees the aggressiveness of the trap, and he takes one step above it. And he doesn't sit in the trap and wait for it to close. He attacks the trap. He challenges the Pharisees. In whose image were you made? The funny thing is, it's not even new info. This isn't some mind-blowing information that they wouldn't have already known. That they were imprinted in God's image, that they're instructed to give their lives to God. These are not new things. Jesus is asking them, who has upheld the law? They're saying, do we need to uphold the law? And he says, hmm, interesting question. Have you upheld the law? And what he's doing is he's referring to something larger than Roman law. He's referring to something larger than, than the current context. What Jesus is ultimately doing is he's, he's making a clever restatement of the Shema in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, this thing that every good Jew would have known. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your might and your strength. And Jesus is giving a clever restatement of that going, you're asking me about taxes? What about your life? It's the essence of the Torah. The essence of Jewish life is in that verse that Jesus twists and brings back and hands back to them and goes, okay, you ask me this, but what are you doing with that? And the implicit question that Jesus is offering back is who has upheld that? Who has upheld the law of Deuteronomy 6? Who has upheld this idea that you would love God with everything you have? Who among us, Jesus is asking, has poured out their entire lives with purity of heart? Who among us has upheld justice and righteousness in every arena? Who among us has avoided all sin, public and private? Who among us has loved God with all heart and soul and might? Who has consistently loved neighbor as self? Who has rendered fully to God what is God's? And in a sense, Jesus is making a pretty damning statement of the Pharisees in response to their trap. As if he were saying, our problem is not whether we have neglected or offended Caesar, but that we have certainly neglected and offended God. Who has fully rendered God his due? Which is why the Pharisees marvel and leave him. Because there is no answer for them now. This is the paradox of Jesus' response, though. Only Jesus can render to God what's God's. Only he can give what's required in exchange for our lives. The paradox is not that we owe—the paradox is that we owe everything to God. You and I owe everything to God for our being. But we can't pay what's required. We fall short of the payment amount. So God himself then gives what he demands. God's greatest gift to the world is himself. And so we have a creator God who owns everything. He creates and then he owns. And his creation rebels and runs and wages war against his rule. And so how does he subdue his creation? How does any great ruler subdue his people? How does God reclaim what was rightfully his? Because God is an upside-down sort of ruler. God reclaims everything by giving everything away. 
No ruler on earth subdues his people by giving them the power, by giving them. No one does that. God does. God reclaims everything by giving everything away. So when we read John 16 and we say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It takes on a different meaning for us. This idea that he gave is not a simple gift. God gave all of himself in the form of Christ in order to reclaim all that was already his in the form of us. When we look at that verse, the term world refers to the rebellion, the opposition to God. God so loved, God loved even those in rebellion. God loved those who were righteously opposed to him. God loved those who were openly critical. God loved them. In a series about love, it's funny, the more you read about love, you can read uh, Christian books about love, and then you can read worldly books about love, and sometimes they start sounding the same. We've created this strange thing with love. We've twisted the idea of love in our culture. And love is almost always an emotion. Love is almost always something that's about me. We've kind of made love into this flat, one-dimensional thing. And we say we love a lot, don't we? I love March Madness. I love pizza. This is a good pizza town, isn't it? A lot of good pizza options. Imagine if, for a moment, imagine if you were like my family, and occasionally, shamefully, you walked down the frozen food aisle in the grocery store, and then you saw the sign that said pizza, and you headed straight for that door, and you saw the nice ones, the $8 pizza, the $7 pizza, the $5 rising crust pizza. Imagine you were like me, and you said, these pizzas are too nice for me and my family. We will go down to the Red Baron, and for $2.79, I can pull out an entire pepperoni pizza. And until recently, I can feed my entire family on that one pizza. Now imagine, if you will, because none of you have ever eaten a Red Baron pizza like I have. (laughs) Imagine that's the only thing you ever knew of pizza. That's all pizza was to you. You said, this is pizza. Red Baron, that's pizza. That's the fullness of of your understanding of it. That's the fullness of expression that it has in your life. It's a Red Baron, straight out of the freezer, 400 degree oven. I think this is cardboard with some sauce on it. Pizza. Living in a town like this, you will understand now, if that was your only experience, that you'd be missing out on the fullness of what pizza really is. There's a place in Brooklyn called Graziella's. And they use the little pepperonis. And I don't know why that's different, but it's different. And they have this brick oven. And you see the pizza go in, and it comes out with these charred bubbles all over the crust. And it's got the little pepperonis, and they put spinach on it. And they bring it to your table, and it's piping hot, and there's nothing like it. It's my favorite pizza in the world. For more of a Manhattan character, you can go to Angelo's. They also have a brick oven, also very good. They use the bigger pepperonis, not quite as good, but you decide. Some of you are Chicago-style pizza people. And you're expecting me to say, well, Giordano's, that's a pretty good pizza. Except that I would say Lou Malnati's is better, isn't it? Right? See? Amen. I'm going to baptize him after, just over that. And you think, this could be pizza? It's thick. It's like three inches thick. One slice is a whole meal. And it can be thin, and it can be 
and you start getting a fuller picture, and you go, pizza's actually this bigger thing. And that's sort of a silly illustration for what we're doing today, and yet it's entirely accurate that what we've done to love is we've collapsed it into a Red Baron pizza. And love is this flimsy, tasteless thing that just comes and goes. It's a commodity. And in essence, love is rich, and it is deep, and there's variety, and there's beauty. So when Jesus says, love your enemies, that's, that's love. There's something in that that we can know and understand. When he says, love your neighbor, that's a different aspect of love. Give to those who need. And then there's things not to love. There's things to avoid. 1 John chapter 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. That rebellion again. Don't love the rebellion. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but, but from the world. Worldly love is twisted inward towards self. Worldly love is a consumptive love, a what's-in-it-for-me sort of love. Worldly love asks the question of render to who? And the answer is always render to me. I'll pay my taxes if you'll give me a refund because then it's for me. I'll like my taxes now. I'll, I'll worship God if he'll bless my endeavors. I'll put him first in my relationship as long as my relationship's going well. What we end up doing is we, we've turned love in and on ourselves. And yet our, our scripture for this whole month says, God so loved the world that what? He gave. That God's greatest example of love is not terminating on himself, it's terminating on someone else. God's greatest example of love is a generous sort of love, a giving sort of love. Where the world's love takes for itself, God's love gives for others. It's fundamentally different. Where the world's love takes for itself, God's love gives for others. This is radical and generous love. Are we starting to understand the word gave? Gave is so much more than than what we, we paint it as. Well, you know, he sent Jesus. God so loved the world, and he was so interested in knowing you. He was so interested in having relationship with you that he willingly gave up Christ. It's obscene generosity. Think about the reasons that we give gifts. Why do we give in our culture? Birthdays, holiday, Christmas. Maybe you get a retirement gift or maybe even a birth gift. You give somebody, hey, you had a baby, here's a gift. We give for occasions, we give for celebrations, sometimes we give as a reward. If you've ever been married, you've given for an apology before. Flower industry in our country is built on marriages. And the apologies we offer in my house, you don't give flowers, you give chocolate-covered strawberries. Remind me of that. Why does God give? What was the occasion? What was the celebration? What was the reward? God so loved not to celebrate us or reward us, certainly not to apologize for us. In Jesus, we see that God was the innocent and the offended party, and he still gave. It's as if my wife and I had a big fight and I was totally in the wrong. And I'm the one who should be buying flowers, chocolate-covered strawberries. And I should be giving those to her to say, I'm so sorry, I got this wrong. You were right all along. And before I could even think to do it, 
she had given me the greatest gift and said, you know what? We're going to be okay. I know it was your fault, but I'm going to take the blame for it. And we're, like, it doesn't even compute. Be like, that wouldn't even work. Because then we'd have guilt. And we'd, it, it, this is the radical, insane love of God that when we try to apply it to our human scale, it doesn't even make sense. No one would think to do that. It's unheard of. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and in an extension. He looks at us and he says, you'll never be able to render your lives to God. Render to Caesar, who cares? You'll never be able to fully render your life to God. What you'll do is dive deeper into rebellion. You'll dive deeper into treason. You'll dive deeper into sin. If you're relying on yourself, you're just going to dive deeper into that. Whether you become more moral and you do more good things, then you run into legalism, right? Well, I've done enough good things. I can be saved. And he goes, that's not going to work. That's just rebellion in a different light. Or you run into being immoral. Well, if it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. And you become licentious. And that doesn't lead to him either. So Jesus, seeing that there's no way for us to find him on our own merit, decides to give himself on our behalf. The gift is given on the cross. And so then what's left? What's left for us? In the Easter season, we think about Christ's gift on the cross, his willingness to take our shame and our pain, his willingness to go and die for us. And we go, well, what do we do with that? I can get that the gift is amazing. I can get that the gift is, is more radical than I ever understood. I can get that this whole giving love thing is bigger than I, maybe I've made it. The only two things we can do is accept the gift and live it out. Accept the gift and live it out. Accepting the gift is, is this idea in the scripture, whoever believes in me. When we surrender to Christ, we're effectively saying, I, can't recognize, I recognize I can't save myself. I recognize I'm totally reliant on you, and so I accept your gift because I can't do it. Christian circles, sometimes we say that we've trusted Christ as our Savior. We don't think about the words as much anymore, but when you trust Christ as Savior, what you're acknowledging is I can't save myself. I'm not the Savior, so I have to trust him to do it. Whoever believes in me should not perish but have eternal life. So, so what he's saying is whoever believes that God's Son is Jesus and that he came and did what he said he was going to do, die for us on behalf of our sins, rise for us to bring us new life. When our response to that is I believe— I'll follow. I don't know what your experience was the first time you said, I believe, I'll follow. In the depths of my soul, I felt, I didn't hear, I felt that whisper of you're safe now. You're safe now. You got it. I don't know your testimony. I know mine. Try harder, try harder, try harder, try harder. Fail really hard. Try harder, try harder, try harder. Be more religious, more religious, more religious. Fail. And I thought, man, this whole God thing is rigged. Because I can do everything right for a month at a time, and if I fail once, apparently I'm no longer good enough, and so then I'm going to fail really hard on purpose. I'm going to dive deep into the darkness. And when I feel just guilty enough that I don't want to do that anymore, I come back and I try to do the light on my own again, and I try harder and I try harder and I get more religious. And eventually, somebody opened John 3.16 for me and said, look, you can't do this. You can't try hard enough. Because the reality is, no matter how hard you try, 
It's just a parallel path to failing. That all you can do is accept that God did it for you already. And in believing and following, there's salvation. I said, okay. I'm going to trust you, but really I'm going I'm to trust him. And I remember praying that prayer, praying, God, I don't want to do this anymore. I can't keep this up, and I've obviously not figured it out yet, so I trust you. And I believe, and I want to follow you, and I don't even know what that means entirely, but I know it's true. And that whisper in my soul of your safe. It's in that moment that moment of committed belief. Then and only then is when we finally find ourselves rendered to God. It's only in surrender that we can ever render ourselves to God. Nothing we can do. Only when we give up trying to do does it ever get there. How do I render to God my life? We lay it down. We give our lives to the one who first gave his life to us. We accept. And if we've accepted, two minutes ago, 20 years ago, then the challenge is how do we live it out? If we're invited into God's life to take part in his way, if we adopt a radical way of seeing the world, then it changes the way that we interact with those around us. It redefines the way we live and treat each other. If we're aware that what the world's love does is take for itself and our love is to be like God's love and to give for others, it changes the way we live. It changes the way we breathe. It changes the way we see our aggravating neighbor or the slow customer service person. It changes the way we see our enemy. As God's people, it forces us to live not for self, but as a display of God's generous love, as an outpouring of God's generous love, as a conduit of God's generous love for the world. So when we live for ourselves, glory terminates on us. We were never designed for that. When we believe and we follow and we agree to surrender our lives, God turns us into a conduit of his love. And the glory then doesn't terminate on us. As we love others, the glory is returned to God. Instead of living for self, we live to give. And so we willingly give time. We willingly give our talents. We willingly give our treasures. We willingly give of everything we are towards the cause of Christ, knowing and remembering who we were before we had been impacted by it. The greatest gift we can give someone is hope in Jesus. Every year, the surveys in Christendom say we're more and more unlikely to tell anyone else about our faith. We're quieter about our faith. We evangelize less. We're afraid of stepping on toes. We're afraid of a culture that doesn't accept us. And so we're quieter and quieter and quieter. And what this is saying is that you were not designed for that. You were not designed to receive the gift of salvation and then hold it. Treasure it, yes, but become a conduit. It can't terminate on us. It has to be a conduit out to those around us. And so in our neighborhoods, whether people know 
your profession of faith, people should know God's love. Whether in your office, if people know that you're a church-going Christian, they should know God's love through you. In our families, in our relationships, people should know God's love because we live to give it. Last week, I said the challenge was to initiate love in some small way. Find some small way to initiate love like God initiates love for us. I don't know if it's different to you to say this week it's your turn to give love. To figure out since God so loved the world that he gave to us, our job is to be conduits of that and to so love the world to find a way to give love away. But if someone pops into your head, if a circumstance or a relationship comes up, when I say it's our turn to give love away, maybe God knows exactly what you need to do this week. To reestablish that channel Not between you and him, but between you and the world that is so desperate. That there are friends and neighbors and coworkers of ours who don't yet know the thing we know. Who don't have the story of going, I tried and I failed and I couldn't figure it out. They don't have the whisper of God in their heart saying, you are safe now. But they have us. And God so loved the world that he gave Jesus. And we so love Christ that we will give our lives to make sure others might hear his name. Let's pray. Father, you you give. You give so radically and generously that it's hard to comprehend, it's hard to uh, it's hard to articulate. But what it must be like to willingly give of your son, what it must be like to take on the wrath that was designed for us and to do so not reluctantly but willingly. Father, I pray that you would uh, quicken our hearts and awaken us to that reality, that you would remind us of the days before we knew you, before we could hear your whisper. Remind us of the feeling of being lost. Father, the depth of despair that comes with uh, sitting in the darkness and wondering what is it all about. God, my prayer is that in bringing us back to that low point, you would remind us of the great joy and jubilation that comes when we did accept. When we say, I believe and I will follow. And you say, you're safe now. God, remind us of the joy of our salvation, the beautiful freedom of not feeling like we have to do it anymore. God, bring our hearts to that place of surrender again where we realize that the only way we actually accomplish what you've asked us to do is to give up our lives and give them to you. God, and as you find us there, my prayer is that you would open one avenue after another for us who love you to be conduits of that love. That this community might be overwhelmed, that our neighbors would be overwhelmed, that our coworkers would be just flummoxed by the generous and radical love that they see from us. The inexplicable love that you gave us. God, I pray that we would be a community that would give that so generously that people would have to stop and say, what is this about? Father, thank you for Jesus. 
Thank you for his life and his death, his resurrection. Thank you that in him we have life. God, I pray that we would live this life well. As our Father, you'd be proud of us. We love you. We pray in Jesus' saving name. Amen.